Welcome to the Development Policy Centre. In this podcast on the Asian Development Bank, you'll hear a panel discussion on the role of the organisation within Australia and the Asia-Pacific region, a critical reflection of the organisation's achievements and shortcomings, and a consideration of how its role might evolve in order to meet the challenges it faces and overcome any shortcomings. We hope you enjoy this podcast. So welcome everybody to the Crawford School of Public Policy and to the Australian National University. Uh, my name is Matthew Donner, I'm the Deputy Director of the Development Policy Centre, uh, which in collaboration with the Asian Development Bank uh, is hosting today's event, uh, ADB at 50, What Does the Future Hold? Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Ngunnawal people, uh, and pay our respect to their elders, past, present and future. Uh, I also want to take a brief moment to recognise the strong partnership that the Development Policy Centre has with the Asian Development Bank, um, especially in uh, areas concerning uh, Papua New Guinea uh, and the Pacific. Um, so together with ADB, um, we resurrected the Pacific Update Conference uh, five years ago now, um, which had lapsed following the end of the Pacific Economic Bulletin. Um, that conference uh, has really gone from strength to strength. Um, it, it's now held at the University of the South Pacific uh, each year. Uh, and the ADB has also supported uh, the Centre uh, and the University of Papua New Guinea uh, in holding the PNG update. And that's scheduled to be held next week uh, at the University uh, of PNG in Port Moresby. Um, so it's wonderful to be holding um, this event here uh, with the Asian Development Bank. Uh, it's also great to have uh, Stephen Groff um, back at the Crawford School. Um, uh, of course, uh, our keynote speaker, uh, Stephen Groff, is the Vice President uh, of the ADB uh, and is responsible for the full range of ADB's operations in East Asia, uh, Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Um, I'll get Stephen up to speak in a moment. Um, before that, though, uh, I will mention that after Stephen, we'll have three other distinguished speakers uh, who will be presenting their insights um, on the ADB uh, at 50 years. Uh, Anne-Marie O'Keefe um, will speak first. Uh, Anne-Marie is based at the Lowy Institute um, for International Policy. Um, she previously had a, a long and um, distinguished career uh, at AusAid, um, including as its um, Deputy Director General. Uh, Anne-Marie will be uh, presenting a study which she has been involved in, uh, along with other colleagues um, from Lowy, uh, which examines ADB's role and relevance um, in the 21st century. Following Anne-Marie, we'll hear from Professor um, Hal Hill, um, seated over here. Um, Hal is based at the Crawford School of Public Policy. Uh, he's one of our foremost um, authorities on the economies of Southeast Asia, uh, and he'll be speaking um, specifically about the ADB um, in Asia. Um, Professor Ron Duncan will speak last. Um, Ron is also based at the Crawford School of Public Policy. Uh, in fact, he was uh, the former director of the, the predecessor um, of the Crawford School. Uh, and, and he's a, an eminent scholar on Pacific and Asian economies, um, a fact recognised by his award of the Order of Australia several years ago, which uh, I know he was too humble to include uh, in his biography. Um, so that's the, the order of speakers. Um, we've got a lot to get through, so I won't say anything else. Um, uh, we'll have Q&A um, after all uh, our speakers have presented. So please join me in welcoming Stephen Groff. Thank you, Matthew, and uh, thank you to the Development Policy Center and the Crawford School for having uh, us here today. Uh, this, um, as uh, Matthew noted, and as noted in the slide in front of you, is ADB's 50th anniversary. So uh, this is the 50th year 
since we were we were set up um, in the in the 1960s, and of course, lots and lots have changed in the region uh, that we serve. If you go back 50 years ago, uh, the region um, was quite dissimilar to what it is today. It was a region that was riven with conflict. It was a region that was uh, that faced a lot of very significant poverty challenges, uh, and a region, in fact, that had quite significant uh, hunger challenges. So that's something that's quite different than what we see today and what we read about in newspapers today and read about in, in, in research and policy work that is conducted at places like the Crawford School um, and work that ADB has focused on over the last number of years as well. So it is really, I think, a reasonable question to ask, um, what is the role of ADB when it was set up 50 years ago in a capital deficit region of the world, one of the main purposes of the of the institution at that time was to figure out how you get uh, capital surplus from the developed parts of the world into a capital deficit region of the world, and that being Asia. Asia now, of course, is a capital surplus region of the world. Um, so the purpose of, of shifting uh, capital from one region of the world to another is no longer a defining purpose of our institution. Now, there's been an evolution in how ADB has approached some of these challenges over the years. ADB started out as solely a project-based institution, solely focused on, on, uh, on infrastructure. Um, that has evolved over time, and, and as recent as, as 15 years ago, 20 years ago, the emphasis shifted to, to poverty and, to a certain degree, inclusive uh, growth. And so that remains, of course, a challenge in the, in the region, uh, but is that enough? So let me start by articulating, I think, some of the challenges that we see going forward in the next 20 or so years. Um, there has been a shift, uh, or actually a sense of return, uh, of, of Asia of being an uh, economic power of the globe. If you go back a number of centuries, of course, Asia and this region was the economic center of the world. Um, but that, of course, changed. And over the last couple of centuries, it has no longer held that Asia is a capital, uh, is, a, is a growth pole of the region. But now, of course, the world's economic center is shifting back to Asia. And today, Asia contributes about 40% of global GDP. And in fact, about two thirds of global growth is, uh, is, is coming out of Asian countries. So that's a significant change that we've seen over the last number of years. And it's a change that we think will continue to happen. Um, I mean, of course, there are challenges that exist but we do think that that, that that evolution will continue over the course of the next several years. Um, we also see another significant change in the region, which is, of course, 68% uh, of the world's population will reside, of Asia's population, will reside in urban, in urban areas by 2030. So we're seeing a massive shift, again, from 50 years ago, where the vast majority of the Asian, Asian populations lived in rural areas, to you know, 15 years from now, we'll see much over 50% of people living in urban areas. So that's, of course, a significant change that we're going to see. And these, these urban areas will drive that growth. So as we see this uh, contribution of Asia uh, to global growth continuing to grow, a lot of that will be centered in urban areas on, on, in Asia. So there's something that, that we need to do in order to make sure that these urban areas both are livable, um, are habitable, and can continue to drive the kind of, of, of contribution to global growth that's going to be critical to the health of the global economy over time. Another challenge that we see emerging over the next several years 
is the rapid acceleration of technology change. This, of course, is not new to anybody who, who uses a computer or reads the newspaper, uh, but the implications of that for, for this region are, are quite significant. It's a region of the world that in many of the countries, Korea, Japan, as, as prime examples, have taken advantage of to, to, to drive growth and, and create prosperity. But in fact, there are some kinds of challenges that we see that are a little bit more worrying uh, on that front. This is a region of the world where labor productivity in the developed parts of the of developing parts of Asia has not progressed significantly, and so we've seen we've seen a, a increase in, uh, in in inequality over the last number of years. If we see disruptive technologies continuing to take hold in in Asia and the Pacific, that can that can further exacerbate this challenge of inequality across many of these economies because labor productivity will not keep up. It will greatly benefit uh, a small section of society uh, or populations in these, in these countries, but not necessarily the populations as a whole. So this challenge that we see of you know, great economic growth in many of these countries and yet uh, continued poverty challenges could, uh, could continue well into the future if we don't figure out how to use these disruptive, disruptive technologies to benefit both the poor and the non-poor in many of these economies. So that's one challenge. So we see this you know, continuing economic growth as, as a great opportunity, but things like accelerating technology change as a challenge and one we think that uh, institutions like the ADB can help mitigate some of the risks associated with that. Another challenge we see in the future is aging populations. This is something we see, of course, in Japan and Korea, uh, but of course also it's a major challenge in China, and it's going to continue to be a challenge in a number of, uh, of other developing Asian economies. And it's going to catch up with some of these economies perhaps a little bit more quickly than they're prepared for. There are demographic dividends that a number of the larger Southeast Asian countries can take advantage of, the Philippines, Indonesia, and others, but that demographic dividend is going to top out in the not too distant future, and those populations will start to level out or even decline as, as those populations age. So figuring out both how do you use the demographic dividend that they have in those growing countries to finance an aging population once you get over that pump is, a, is one challenge that these countries have to overcome. But those countries that are already aging, China being a prime example, have, have, have run out the course of the demographic dividend and have to figure out how do you increase, uh, how do you increase labor productivity in a way uh, that you can finance the elderly care, finance health care, finance all the other things that an aging population needs. So there's a lot we can learn from the examples that are set by Japan and Korea um, in some of these other economies. But the scale, of course, if you look at a China relative to to a Japan and Korea is significantly different. So there are some real challenges that a lot of these countries face with an aging population. It's not something that has traditionally been the focus of institutions like ours, but of course it is something we see as a significant challenge to the region, something we probably need to be prepared to address. Um, the also, I mentioned in passing this issue of inequality and how that has, has defined the region over the last several decades. This is something that, again, is, is, is a challenge that we need to be addressing and we need to be keeping firmly in frame. Uh, the kinds of growth that we've seen over the last number of years have exacerbated in many of these, in many of these markets uh, 
inequality. Uh, we see, uh, you know, the, the region is composed largely of middle-income countries at the moment. In the next several years, almost all of the countries in Asia Pacific will be middle-income. Many of those will be upper middle-income. Um, so the availability of concessional types of resources, of grant resources to help those countries along, starts to disappear. Um, and yet there are huge, significant pockets of poverty uh, that continue to, to exist in many of these countries. And with technological change, with uh, some of the, 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 the potential disconnect that you see between great technological advancements and yet those not necessarily benefiting poor people directly will continue to exacerbate inequality. So, and then this also relates to global, uh, global uh, uh, volatility and economic volatility and shocks uh, that, that, uh, that continue to, to you know, plague the, the, the world. That will continue. We don't know what the regularity that will be, but we have seen increases in those kinds of shocks over the last number of years, and that can exacerbate inequality to, to, to a great degree. So there's a number of challenges on the inequality front that institutions such as ours are probably reasonably placed to help these countries address and, 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 and sort through. Another, another challenge, of course, that is well known to, to all of you is the increasing threat of climate change. Um, Asia is uh, the region of the world, the Pacific countries most particularly, uh, are the most vulnerable to the negative impacts of climate change. Um, so this is a significant challenge for the region as a whole. It's a particularly significant challenge for a lot of Pacific countries. And this is something that, uh, that is gonna, going to, has been a focus of, of our institution over the last number of years, but we do believe it's going to be a, a continued important role that we can play um, in helping countries manage the, the, the negative impacts of climate change. So these are some sort of broad stroke challenges that we see at the region facing as a whole. And how do we think ADB um, will continue to, 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 to play a role there? I think first and foremost is, is that we need to um, be much faster in our response, much quicker, much more flexible. Uh, I don't mean in any way that we need to uh, sacrifice some of the core principles that we that we stand for, those being the, 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 the fundamental importance of safeguards when it comes to environmental and social kinds of safeguards. Those are critically important. Those will continue to be critically important. But we do need to be able to respond much more quickly than we have been, have been able to historically. Um, that's for two reasons. First, the kinds of challenges that we see are going to affect these economies perhaps more quickly than they have in the past, and the kinds of volatility I mentioned are going to have negative, you know, potentially major negative impact, impacts in, over very short periods of time for some of these more vulnerable economies. So we need to be able to respond to that quickly. Um, and we need instruments that allow us to respond flexibly and quickly to those kinds of, of challenges. We also are seeing a growing diversity in, in, in our clients. We have um, some major economies in the region, China obviously being one, but India um, being another. And we have all the way down to countries like Nauru and Tuvalu. Uh, and so the diversity across these kinds of, of countries is, is significant. And so the kinds of people that we have and the kinds of expertise that we have within the institution needs to be reflective of the diverse nature of our clientele and the diversity of their needs um, over time. Um, we need to be able to respond and align ourselves with, with, uh, with emerging global agendas. Uh, when you look at the, the Paris Agreement, when you look at the, the SDGs, 
Uh, when you look at the, the agreement coming out of Addis Ababa on financing for development, we as an institution need to be uh, positioning ourselves in a way that we can respond to these global agendas and find our niche within those global agendas and helping our clients respond to these, these, these kinds of agendas as they, as they move forward. We also need to, our, our share of development finance in the region, our share of, of infrastructure investment in the region has declined dramatically as the region has grown, as economic growth has, has continued over the last 50 years. And so what's important for us is not necessarily maintaining a healthy balance sheet for ADB for a development bank is important, but as important as maintaining a healthy balance sheet is, is the degree to which we leverage that balance sheet, the degree to which we are crowding in other sorts of kinds of investment into the region to address poverty, to address inclusive growth, inclusive and sustainable growth. So we need to be able to ramp up our ability and our responsiveness to partners um, defined broadly and the degree to which we are able to work uh, with partners ranging from universities and think tanks uh, to other development banks to the private sector to civil society is critical for us to be able to play our role. We are not, um, you know, I think the history of our institution is one of being a dispenser of knowledge and I think that what our, our role needs to become is that much more of a broker of knowledge, not possessing all the knowledge and experience within our own institution and our own four walls, but knowing where that knowledge res resides and being able to link that knowledge to you know, where it exists and where it's needed and playing that kind of broker role much more effectively perhaps than we have in the past. Um, and of course, expanding our lending is going to be part of that, but we're never going to be able to expand our lending at the rate that we see growth happen. So we're not gonna maintain an even share of, uh, of, of development finance in the region over the course of the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. But with leverage, we can, I think, play an important role going forward. So I'm conscious of the fact that we, we have a, a limited amount of time this morning. There's a lot that we can talk about these things, but I think what's more interesting perhaps than hearing me speak is to hear some of the others speak, uh, but also to get to the Q&A session. So that's just sort of a general kind of uh, chapeau, if you will. Uh, to what I think will be a much more interesting conversation as we proceed. So, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, um, Anne-Marie. Thanks, uh, thanks very much, and thank you very much for Giving, uh, giving me, on behalf of my co-authors from the Lowy Institute, the opportunity to, to talk about the work that we've been doing on um, the ADB in, in the 21st century. Um, look, not surprising, I think by the end, by half past 11, we are going to have heard a lot of similar things. Because when you're looking at the... Um, the stage, if you like, which is modern-day Asia, uh, we can all pretty much see the same sorts of things. Sometimes we might arrange it a bit differently, we might have different actors closer to the centre of the stage, some might be waiting um, to, to come stage left, but basically they're all there. So what I want to do today is uh, give you an idea of why we are doing the report, where it comes from, and our, 
and our thinking so far. But I have to warn you, this is kind of like a taster because we're not launching the report today. So you'll have to come back next year if you want to hear our recommendations. So um, this is an opportunity for, for me and if Jonathan wants to pipe in, one of our co-authors, please do, Jonathan. Um, but it's an opportunity to make you want to come back and hear more about it. So let me start and um, Stephen, it is going to be a little bit repetitive with what you're saying, but as I say, it's not surprising because we, uh, we, we see a similar sort of environment in which the ADB is operating. So why are we doing this report, you know, seeking to determine how and if the ADB should remain uh, relevant in 21st century Asia. Let me just make it very clear from the beginning that we are not touching the Pacific in our report. Um, the Pacific, as all of us who've had anything to do with the Pacific over a, any period of time, we understand very clearly there's big differences. You talk about the diversity of clients. Well, the Pacific is one set of clients which kind of stands right if you like, stage left. In fact, it's not even on the stage as far as we're concerned for this report. So people don't get disappointed. We will not be addressing the Pacific. Perhaps that could be our next report. So why? Now, this is a question that was put to the Lowy Institute by uh, a foundation in the US called the Smith Richardson Foundation, which is um, a, a quirky sort of organisation that every year likes to find some big questions that it would like answered. And it decided that uh, it needed to have this question answered, predominantly to share it with the next US administration. So that made us think, how are we actually going to address? They didn't give us any, any marching orders. This was the question. Go answer it. See what you think of the key elements that such a, such a report should, should hold. We think, we're not sure, but we think the question comes from the geopolitics that we see in Asia at the moment, particularly from the US perspective, particularly in terms of the way in which the US slash China relationship is evolving in, in, uh, in many ways, not a particularly positive way. The, this leads to the role that, that China has in the ADB, both as a client, um, but also as um, the third largest shareholder. So there's all those sorts of elements that are floating there. We've got India as well. It's, it's continual emergence from, from being um, a recipient to a donor in its own right, its own development, fastest growing economy at the moment. So you've got those sorts of geopolitical elements in it, which you can kind of understand why perhaps um, a foundation in Washington is asking the question, so why the ADB when Asia has become, as you pointed out, Stephen, such an economic powerhouse with uh, two-thirds of global growth. Why have this publicly funded institution? Why haven't we just put it all over to 
the private sector. So they're all the sorts of questions that are floating around. And then on top of that, uh, you've got the role of the private sector in Asia, but also you've got two new two newbies on the block. You've got AIIB, again, another element which impacts on the relationship US slash China. We saw the US response to AIIB. In particular, we saw the US response when the Brits decided to pull the rug and join. And then Australia followed. And gosh, we're just waiting for Canada now. So, you know, there's those sorts of elements. And then, of course, there's the, the MDB. Less of, a, less of an effective, um, I'd say, institution. But still, it points to the big change in terms of that old-fashioned term, the South, taking charge of itself of itself and supporting other so-called South countries. So that's, that's all happening. Then you've got Asia's changing economic geography. Very similar to what you've set out, Stephen, is what we've also identified. We've grouped it in different ways, and I'll run over that in a minute, but still pretty, pretty similar. And then, of course, how to harness development finance better, particularly in terms of the diminishing role that public foreign aid style development financing plays in Asia now. Again, similar territory to, to what you've covered, but again, we've, we've sort of put it in, in a different sort of mould. Um, you also pointed to the beginnings of the ADB and, you know, just, just thinking about some of the countries in 1966 when the ADB was formed. You had, you know, the stirrings of the Cultural Revolution in China. You had the impact of partition still in Pakistan uh, and, uh, and India and, um, and East Pakistan at the time. Very, very nasty stuff. You had Vietnam, gosh, you know, so many different conflicts and difficulties happening in that country all at the same time. You had the, still the, 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 the flow-on effects of Confrontasi. So no one was really doing particularly well, as you pointed out, but you had huge poverty, you had conflict, you had rebellion. It was a mess. And you had the Cold War, just to keep it well stirred in case anything got stuck and looked as though it was going to get better. So uh, very, very difficult, and as you've pointed out, a very different environment today, but still not an easy environment. And uh, I think that's the thing we, we can sometimes overlook. So with our report, we're, we're going to look at um, the three, what we see is the three big issues. So it's the geopolitics, how that's affecting the region, how this may or may not impact on um, the ADB itself, its operations, given the relationships between US, uh, Japan, China, your three biggest, how they're going to work through that. They've done it before, but it's still an important question to ask. The, the next big thing we're looking at is the changing economic geography and then harnessing the finance. 
Now, I'm just going to run through this very quickly because I think the Q&A is going to be really interesting in terms of getting things out. So, geopolitics, I've, I've mentioned the, the relationship between China and the US, but you've also got a very activist president in presidency who's absolutely determined to use what he sees as China's progress economically to forward to push forward even further China's own national interests doing this through the one belt one road through the establishment of AIIB and unfortunately through the the actions in the South China Sea all this is making um, particularly the West and other parts of, of Asia very uncomfortable in terms of what China's doing Mentioned before in terms of India, its transition from donor to client, but also it's in its relationship within South Asia, with its own neighbours, and the fact that the ADB's regional projects in the in South in South Asia can and are impacted by the relationship between India and uh, and its neighbours, which it's no secret is is at times quite fractious and difficult. At the same time, India is still home to. Um, a very large number of very, very poor people. In fact, the, um, they've got the largest number of, of people living in extreme poverty in Asia. You've got Japan and the US, no secret, backbone of the bank, but Japan feeling tension with the US over China's graduation. You know, this is something that we need to actually look at. Should China still be receiving concessional development finance? You know, the US is uncomfortable with this. It's, it's a question that needs to be asked. It needs to be looked at and, and considered how China should actually be dealt with. Difficult question for the ADB since it's one of your biggest clients and a good paying client. That's very important. And then the USA uh, waxes and wanes in terms of its relationship with ADB. Uh, very small profile within <coughs> Washington itself. Um, sometimes it's interested, sometimes it's not. Uh, I think part of the issue with um, the Obama uh, administration's efforts to uh, implement the Asia pivot which has been underwhelming, I think we would all agree with that. It hasn't actually looked at the way in which ADB may support some of the development aspirations outlined in that pivot. But maybe we have to wait for the next administration, whatever the next administration might be. So that's just some of the geopolitics that, that we're going to be looking at in more detail and seeing how this may or may not impact on the bank. In terms of economic geography, I always, I, I always like people to pull apart the macro numbers. It's all very well to say that Asia represents two-thirds global growth. But if you have a look at some of the countries within Asia, the poverty is extensive. Extreme poverty. We're not just talking poor here. We're talking seriously extreme poverty. 
it's extensive. I'm not going to go through the numbers today, but <clears throat> I think it's very important to see what's happening there. And also, as you pointed out, Stephen, inequality absolutely increasing as poverty decreases, inequality seems to be going in the other direction for all the sorts of reasons that you pointed out. But I think one of the biggest issues uh, is the way in which poverty is found within the middle-income countries and, and what to do about that. As one of the people we talked to from an NGO said, it's time we stop talking, stop talking about poor countries and looked at the fact that there are pockets of poverty everywhere, how to address um, poverty within the middle-income countries. The other big uh, changing economic um, geographic issue, of course, is the infrastructure gap. ADB's done a lot of work on this, but there's huge issues that need to be dealt with, which are far beyond the, the ability of just one small institution. Now, even all the MDBs combined wouldn't be able to, to deal with the sorts of governance and legal frameworks that need to be in place to address the sort of infrastructure gaps. The, the understanding of, of the nature of risk and what it does to private sector appetite, very hard at times for a public institution to actually understand that. Gosh, I used to work for the Australian government. I know how difficult it is for a public entity to ever think about risk. There cannot be risk. So very difficult if you're trying to work with the private sector, which is trying to make a profit. And then you've got the impact on communities and the environment and, of course, the, the need to include um, information technology. Climate change, huge. I'm just going to leave it there. We all know how huge it is for Asia for a whole range of reasons. We've also got, um, if you like, sometimes some people hate it when you mention the middle income trap. Is it a real trap or is it just a continuum? But the reality is that there are, within Asia, only eight of the 26 developing member countries have actually graduated to upper middle income. It's taking a while. Is it just a slow trip north or is there, is there a real issue in terms of policy settings, productivity? No doubt it's a combination of a range of things, but we want to have a little look at that. Demographics, are some of these countries grow old, going to grow old before they actually get rich? Big issue there, and you've pointed out some of the other issues relevant to demographic dividends as well. Um, development finance changing, how huge it has changed. In 1980, ADB contributed something like 10% of total inflows of foreign aid, uh, remittances and FDI into Asia, 10%, 1980. It's only 1% now. So that kind of helps focus the mind in terms of where the actual capital is coming from at the moment. But, you know, uh, as my co-author, because he's particularly responsible for this one. As he would point out, development financing is only one part of the equation. The, the, the big issue here is that the ADB is an institution which can actually respond to those sorts of essential public goods 
that the private sector doesn't have an appetite for and often governments don't have an appetite for, but which are absolutely essential to ensuring and underpinning the, 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 the requirements for at least prosperity. Great. Growth, if you like, but at least prosperity for, for the bigger proportion of, uh, of people. I'm going to leave it there because... Yeah, I've probably gone over too far, and we've got Q&A, so thanks. Thank you very much for that fascinating glimpse into the report. I look forward to its launch and how. Yeah. Uh, good morning, everybody. I'm Hal Hill from the ANU. Thanks very much for the invitation, and I've enjoyed the two previous presentations. So uh, let me just start with a declaration. Uh, I've never worked for the ADB uh, formally as an employee. I have worked for them very often as a consultant. I, I don't know how many times since about 1980, probably about 20 times, including one currently. So I sort of know the organisation from the outside, but a little bit with a foot in the door. Uh, and... Um, I've also been involved in some of the evaluation work of the ADB, particularly the ADB Institute, which I guess is sort of a little bit outside of uh, Stephen's remit, but part of the ADB. Uh, most of my work, in fact, almost all my work has been uh, with uh, involving the Southeast Asian countries, the countries I work on the most, and um, it's been mainly with the Economics Office. Uh, I've also had a lot of PhD students who've gone to the ADB sites. So Sort of feel as I know a little bit, a little bit about the ADB uh, through them, and um, for those of you like me who are on the Peter Macaulay email list, which means you get an email every second hour practically, uh, and Peter, of course, is involved in uh, the the 50-year history of the ADB. I guess I've become a little bit more involved in the ADB uh, because of that. So let me just set out uh, what I see as some of the strengths of the ADB and some of the challenges of the ADB. Some of these repeat, in fact, points that Stephen and Anne-Marie made. So um, seems to me that the rationale for the ADB when it was established was very clear. There was a great need for development finance, uh, and development finance meaning long-term capital flows with ideas. In the sense, it's the package which is important. It's the finance plus the ideas. And so the original rationale for a place like the ADB, like the World Bank, was, in a sense, a missing market. You need the package of ideas and and long-term finance. So that's, I think that's a, that's a worthy rationale and a rationale which to some extent still exists. It exists much less as an imperative than it used to, but it still exists. So in a sense, that's one of the strengths of the ADB to begin with. Secondly, and obviously it's an Asian organisation, it's an, with an Asian view uh, of Asian issues, and I think that's really important. It's sometimes perhaps missed a little bit, but the ADB, it's always been my impression the ADB is a kind of meeting point. I think maybe you mentioned that, Stephen. It's a meeting point for lots of people working on and from Asia, uh, policy makers and researchers, NGOs and the others. So I think that's really, it's hard to quantify its importance, but I think it is really important. Uh, I guess I go to ADB a couple of times a year and you always are struck by the, the, the flow of ideas and people uh, meeting at ADB for various things. And I think that's, I think that's a really worthy goal. It's often been a place where senior policy people have ended up for a while, so it, it, it interacts at various levels, from the sort of the fresh, raw, young PhD graduates, very strong in technique, but not necessarily with policy, through to the kind of policy 
the policy people. So that's a very useful thing. Uh, a third strength, I would say, of the ADB is it sort of gets on with development. Um, the ADB, uh, my impression is, tends to be uh, not a very proselytising organisation. It just wants to get on and, uh, and do things, uh, especially in its earlier incarnations. It was uh, heavily involved in infrastructure, I guess less so now, as, as Stephen mentioned. But it has been, I think, a, a pragmatic kind of uh, organisation doing things um, less on proselytising and sometimes I think that's useful not always but sometimes it's very useful because governments don't want to be sort of preached to but which in a sense the, the Washington based organisations tend to do more of so I think the ADB is often seen as a sort of as a friendly development partner uh, wanting to get on and invest in development so I think they're the three strengths as I said and I think they're all really important strengths uh, which, which are commendable, and maybe will come out in some of some of Anne Marie's work as well. Uh, so that's the strength. What about the challenges? Uh, let me speak a little bit about them, since I guess this is where we're now at. Fifty years, we're trying to evaluate where the ADB is going. Well, the first and most obvious point is um, is uh, again, as Stephen mentioned, ADB is, uh, Asia has changed an awful lot since 1966. So some countries are practically unrecognisable compared to 1966. Some countries' per capita incomes have risen by you know, 10 times, 15 times. Uh, so there's been this dramatic transformation in some countries. Uh, that's meant, of course, that countries have graduated from, from uh, ODA, um, ODA uh, which I guess in some countries still is quite important uh, in, the, in, the, in the middle income, high growth economies. It's, almost disappeared and it's sort of 0 0.1, 0.2% of GDP. So that whole game has changed an awful lot. Uh, these countries can, of course, now tap international capital markets and international capital markets themselves have changed quite a lot. Perhaps not changed enough for long-term development finance, sort of bond markets, but they've changed a lot. Uh, and so that's, that's a clear challenge for the for the ADB in a sense this very new world for many countries, not all countries, as Anne-Marie mentioned, a lot of diversity, but for many countries. And that's that's the first really big challenge, I think. Second challenge is, uh, I've always liked the argument that, that Paul Collier from Oxford has put about, about development, about the package which, which development institutions bring. And they bring, in a sense, there are two inputs. There are, there's money and there's ideas. And the point which Paul's often made, I think it's a very important point, is you need flexible coefficients between the money and the ideas. And the challenge for institutions, both bilateral and multilateral, is to be able to adjust those coefficients as needed by countries. If countries are, are performing very strongly, their rapid, rapid economic growth, rapid reductions in, in poverty and so on, Arguably, the most important thing is just to keep the money flowing and don't get so involved in, in ideas. If, clearly, if an economy is performing strongly on a whole lot of indicators, uh, it must be doing something right. And so, in a sense, money is the most important thing. Let the money flow. On the other hand, if a country is performing very, very poorly uh, on a whole range of economic and social indicators uh, and there's major problems with institutions and governance, then money is unlikely to solve the problem. And what you really need to do, I guess, is to think about institutions and how to develop the institutions which are going to lead to better governance and better policy. And therefore, institutions like 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 uh, DFAT, OSAID, uh, like AD, ADB, have to be able to uh, 
ideally have to be able to have the flexibility to be able to adjust the coefficients, but it's very difficult to change the coefficients when you've got an established modus, modus operandi. So uh, I think that's one of the challenges for not just ADB, but for any organisation involved in development, and it's one which is a very difficult one, I think, to do. Uh, and it's especially the case as countries' per capita incomes rise, and what becomes... I think much more important is the ideas around development uh, rather than just building things, rather than building roads, it's about, it's about ideas uh, for, for good policy. Uh, that, that leads to a, a more general observation on the ADB, uh, and it's, it's not a critical one, but it's, it's a challenge, I think, and that is that it's always struck me the ADB is a tremendous repository of ideas. Just walking around the corridors, of the ADB, you meet a lot of interesting people who know a lot about individual countries and know a lot about development issues. The question is, do those, does that tremendous knowledge base sort of come to the surface uh, in the ADB as, as, in, as in other institutions? And I think it's not unfair to say that it sometimes struggles to come to the surface. Uh, one little illustration of that is the ADB's had a journal since um, I think it was 1980, it was first established, called the Asian Development Review, uh, ADR. Some of you may know it. Uh, I think it's still going. Uh, I was on the editorial board for a while, and, but I haven't followed it closely. But it, it's had a rather, uh, how would you put it? Um, it's had a somewhat checkered career. Uh, it's been on again, off again, and uh, you, wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily uh, level that as a criticism of the ADB, but I think it is illustrative of some of the challenges involved uh, in an institution which has been very pragmatic in terms of getting projects done, but, but perhaps hasn't paid enough attention to the big ideas and the big development issues. I mean, if you think of these sort of dramatic development transformations, uh, you think of, say, a country like Indonesia, which uh, for 50 years had declining per capita income, that is 50 years until 1965, and since 1965 its per capita income has risen about sevenfold. Uh, you know, part of the dramatic Asian economic transformation story. So clearly something happened in the mid-1960s, uh, and we, we know, sort of know what happened, very complex story, but we, what happened was better policies were introduced and that led to really rapid economic growth, suddenly after 50 years of economic decline. So I guess the point I'm trying to get at is, in a sense, in the big story of Asian economic development, ideas are the ultimate driver of that, of the success story, and therefore the way to understand Asian economic development is to understand the ideas which inform policy. So... Um, I think that's a challenge, uh, of course it's a challenge for we in academia, but it's also a challenge for a place like the ADB, which is trying to promote rapid economic development. Uh, a few other general observations. Um, I think it's fair to say that uh, ADB um, is like the Bretton Woods institutions. Um, it is a product of its history, and it's, a lot of its history is a very fine history, uh, but uh, I guess it needs to change with the times. Uh, Clearly, in the case of the ADB, um, when it was set up, uh, it, it was obvious that Japan was going to be the major Asian country in it because in, the, in 1966, Japan was really the only, the only high-income or approaching high-income country in Asia. Uh, now that's changed a lot. Um, has the ADB sort of loosened up enough and changed with the times institutionally? 
Um, arguably not, um, in the same way that the World Bank's always had a, a president from the United States and the IMF's always had a, a managing director from uh, Europe. Uh, ADB's always had a Japanese president. Um, it's always been a male president, by the way. Uh, and I guess it's almost always been a president from the Ministry of Finance. I, it may have been non-MOF, but I don't, I don't think so. So in a way, it is that was the model which made sense at the time. Does it make sense at the moment? Well, arguably not. You want to pick a president uh, on merit, uh, and it's, with all due respect to the Japanese Ministry of Finance, it's not clear that, that that's the sole, reposit uh, sole repository of merit in Asia. Uh, and that, of course, explains partly why, as Anne-Marie mentioned, the rise of the new institutions, particularly AIIB. And uh, you have to feel, I think, a lot of sympathy with big Asian countries, China, India, Indonesia, who sort of feel shut out a bit by the by the um, global um, institutional architecture. Now, of course, it's true to say that ADB, like the World Bank and IMF, have changed a lot in terms of recognising that and at senior levels promoting the nationals from those countries. But uh, in an ideal world, you would have you know merit-based selection process all the way to the top. Uh, another comment, just to just to a separate point, somewhat sort of somewhat separate. So I'm just throwing in a few ideas. Um, and maybe Ron will pick this up in specific context, um, but I think there's a challenge for donors in very small countries with weak bureaucracies. So within the Southeast Asian context, you'd think of a country like Laos or Cambodia, where you've got a lot of donors, uh, a country which is still quite heavily ODA-dependent, um, ODA and the donors, in a sense, sometimes tend to fall over each other, and, that's, and they're interacting with a weak bureaucracy uh, and, and therefore the, the donors, in a sense, duplicate activity somewhat, sometimes, and impose a lot on those weak bureaucracies. So uh, I guess that's a role where it's, it's perhaps asking too much of the ADB itself to be able to take the lead role in, in trying to coordinate a bit better, but clearly it's an issue for all, for all people involved in development assistance, not, but not just the ADB. Uh, in terms of uh, a few specifics, I've mentioned a couple. Uh, and this is again not just ADB, but in general. Wrap up. Yep. Yep. I'm right, almost there, Matthew. Sorry to go on a bit. So um, a couple of specifics. Uh, I think a lot of the main, a lot of the main uh, discourses are happening in countries in the countries with good think tanks, which are directly connected both to the academic world and to the policy world. Now, so the ADB does this as well. But I think some of the really good think tanks in the region um, do it very effectively. I'm thinking of. Philippine Institute for Development Studies, the Thai Development Research Institute, Smeru Research Institute in Indonesia, CSIS in Jakarta. And I think there's a case for saying that that's where a lot of the main game is now shifting because these institutions very effectively provide the bridge between policy and academia. And so ADB, of course, has close relations which, with those organisations. Uh, I think that's perhaps something there, the institutions where where in the future they're going to be leading a lot of the policy uh, engagement and so ADB and donors in general have to think very carefully about their interaction with them. Also, I'd like to see a bit more free flow of ideas within the ADB. Uh, the chief economist of about two or three times ago, the colleague of ours here at ADB, uh, Professor Zhong Hua Li, tried to introduce a system of fellowships and visits and so on. My impression is that there could be a lot more scope for doing that sort of cross-fertilisation. 
So bottom line, uh, I think ADB has been a very important organisation. Uh, if it didn't exist, you'd have to reinvent it. But if you did re-establish it, you did re-establish it, you'd clearly do it differently now as you would in 1966. Thank you. Thanks for a fascinating talk, Hal. Thanks, Stephen, uh, Matt, and ladies and gentlemen. Um, I guess my my early relationship with with the ADB was from the World Bank, where I was in charge of co commodity price forecasting for 40, 14 years. And uh, of course, the ADB was one of our one of our clients for their forecasts. And I just want to say that I take absolutely no responsibility for what the result of those forecasts were. So you, you just have to make forecasts if you're doing benefit-cost analysis and you've just got to live with it. <laughs> so, but since, since uh, I left the World Bank and came uh, back here to the ANU, I guess uh, uh, my relationship you know, with developing countries has mostly been, mostly been with uh, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, although Earlier on, I did quite a lot of work with uh, China and, and Vietnam, but uh, in recent years, it's much more with the Pacific. Um, and you know, it's it's a very interesting region for economists. I I say to people, I'd be dead bored working on the Australian economy after working for so many years on the Pacific, um, because it's you know you just have this all these challenges. Uh, they're small, so economies of scale are very difficult. They've got to establish international markets if they want to get economies of scale. They're remote, so they've got these very high trade costs. Um, they have these really high incidents of, of natural disasters, uh, which lead to very extreme volatility. And of course, that that knocks down their average growth over time, as well as uh, just making it difficult to recover after each of these uh, uh, these kinds of events. Then, in some countries, there's a particular problem of political instability. Though, I've uh, having looked at the political instability back in the 70s and uh, 90s, and then the the fiscal crisis that they had, at, many of them had at the time. Uh, what's interesting is they seem to have learned from that that, that you know, it doesn't matter how much political instability you want to uh, inject into the economy, it's important to, you know, to keep your, your macroeconomic policy stable. So you still see lots of instability, but there's nothing, political instability, but there's nothing like the, the uh, um, fiscal instability that we uh, saw you know, two, two decades ago. But it's because of the, the kinds of societies they are, the economic reform, economic change, is just, it's just very difficult. So, you know, given all these uh, difficulties, you know, it's not, it's not unreasonable, I guess, in the sense that you know, the ADB, is, as well as the World Bank, lost interest in the Pacific over many years. And uh, it... And I guess, you know, in terms of the, the kinds of metrics that they use, these institutions use, the unit cost of lending 
the inner cost of lending is just bloody high in, in the Pacific. And so, you know, for essentially an investment bank, then, you know, that's, it's just a very difficult thing to live with. Now, happily, there's the, the ADB and the, the World Bank have shown much more interest in, in, the, in the Pacific. Uh, the ADB has established you know, quite a large office in Sydney. They've got offices in most of the major or larger Pacific Island countries. Um, uh, World Bank is the same. They're taking much more interest. I don't know what explains that, whether whether it's uh, running out of interesting things elsewhere and want to take on this complex challenge, or, or whether it's climate change and they feel that they, they uh, you know, have to do something for that. But uh, there has been this, this recent change, and I, it's, it's most welcome. It, of course, it, you know, it, in contrast uh, to the role as an investment bank, you know, having to become much more of a, 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 an agency trying to understand things uh, rather than you know, uh, such a focus on lending money, although the two, the two things obviously related. But uh, the, uh, as I say, I'm very happy to see that change. But as I said, you know, this, this region for development economists is just a, a really interesting and, and challenging uh, place to work. As I say, that you know the, com the complexity we see with the, the traditional sort of dimension of of these economies, you 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 know you just have to take account of of uh, the, the facts that these are traditional societies with uh, all their customary customary practices. This. As I say the smallest, some some are incredibly small, you know, ten thousand people in Nauru and Tuvalu. But they're still whole economies. You know, I mean you still have a whole economy there with fiscal policy, monetary policy, and all, all the rest of it. And so, you know, it's not that they're they're small and therefore you know, uh, uninteresting. But uh, but that of course raises questions about uh, things like regional integration, you know, what role should that play in the Pacific? Regional public goods, what role should regional public goods such as transport, uh, economic institutions such as competition policy, competition law, have, you know, can that be done on a, on a regional basis? And that's become more interesting of recent years as, uh, as uh, with the introduction of Opening up the telecommunication sector and other other sort of public infrastructure sectors, then you have all these questions about about competition, and as well uh, with these countries, as I say, natural disasters and economic shocks. So you know, they've got to cope with uh, this this high level of volatility. You know, the two thousand seven eight food and fuel crises really uh, hit them hard. Similarly, the global financial crisis hit uh, what's become uh, the most important sector for many of these economies, uh, tourism. So uh, you know, how, how to handle those, uh, those kinds of issues are uh, important. Yet, as I say, in, in, we've had all these things, but my uh, 
experience working with the Pacific Division and the, the, the experience I've had with the ADB over the past 20 years is mostly with the Pacific Division. It's one of the innovators in the, in the bank. Now, I don't know whether that's because that's because of the difficulties it faces, it forces people to be, to be more innovative or what, but I've, I've found um, that you know, my experience with them, and it's been a pretty substantial experience over the years, is, is that they've been prepared to, to, to dive in where other parts of the bank haven't been, or much earlier than other parts of the bank. So uh, particularly with areas of, of interest of mine, which is, uh, as, as say, uh, political economy, sort of trying to relate you know, economic issues to to the cultural and political situation, because if you don't get those right, you know your economics is not not going to be terribly useful. So that's uh, that's an area in which the the Pacific Division was earlier into than all the rest of the bank. Um, things like the diagnostic studies, another interest of mine. Um, they the Pacific was first into that, and I was giving giving talks to the Pacific Division in the bank you know, on diagnostic studies, on binding constraint studies and those sorts of things long before you know, the rest, rest of the bank was, was doing that. On, on institutional development, this, by that I mean economic institutions, you know, property rights, contract enforcement, law and order, these things that are basic you know, to, to development. Unless you get those things right, you know, you, um, you know, th other things don't work, and you know, there's the, what became quite a well-known concept in the bank was the idea that uh, Stephen Pollard and I developed the, the pyramid, you know, and showing people that you know it's no use working about at the top with loans and whatever if the, right down at the bottom of the pyramid you don't you don't have property rights and contract enforcement all those those things in place that. That Adam Adam Smith talked about. So, as I say, the ADB is now giving much more attention to the Pacific, despite the the, uh, the high lending costs, the challenging policy environment, and in particular, I'm, I'm very pleased to see the renewed interest in agriculture. Like the World Bank, uh, back when I was there. It, sort of just lost interest in agriculture. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the, the same thing happened in, in the ADB. And I think my interpretation of that was that, um, that largely coming out of the, the Asian miracle work by the World Bank where the, there was the idea that developed that if you, what you needed were labor intensive industries and so the idea of you know get pushing countries into uh, manufacturing where it could take up uh, people coming out of agriculture, but you know what the economic miracle missed was that prior to that was the development of the agriculture sector in the land-rich countries of East Asia where this happened. You know early on within Thailand and uh, Indonesia and later in Vietnam and China there was this initial initial growth. And I think, you know, it just took people's mind away from the fact that, you know, you did, you needed that basis in order to develop, to generate the savings 
to invest in, into your industrial development. So uh, I think for, for countries, land-rich countries such as Papua New Guinea, for the Melan other Melanesian countries such as Fiji, uh, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, as well as Samoa and Tonga, uh, that are all essentially land-rich, you know, that's, that's where you really have to start to develop. You can't start you know, putting things uh, up into the services or manufacturing sector trying to develop there unless you develop uh, at, at where, where most of your people are. And of course that tackles this whole issue about inequality. If you're going to have uh, you know, what used to be called pro-poor growth, which I'm happy to see has disappeared from the language, uh, you know, where are the people? Where's your comparative advantage? It's in agriculture in these countries. And so that's, that's where, you, where you have to start. So, uh, as I say, I'm very happy to see uh, that, uh, that that has uh, uh, this renewed interest in agriculture. Hopefully, uh, you know, that uh, the, the bank might take a renewed interest in fishing, which is uh, another area that uh, I've written about over the years, and I think you know, much more needs to be done, although there's been some, happily some really good moves in, in the way of managing the uh, uh, access rights to the, the tuna fishing. Oh, and just just finally on the on the agriculture, you know, we we have this very sensitive issue of access to land. Of course, you, you're not going to have agricultural development without secure access to land, and uh, that's that's I say a very sensitive issue. Uh, thankfully, we've now got a wonderful example in Papua New Guinea, which uh, in 2009, the parliament unanimously passed uh, land legislation which opened up custom land for 99 year lease, which I think is one of the, the greatest revolutions of the, the past 100 years. Uh, you know, and for, you know, once that works its way into the, into the Papua New Guinea economy, you know, that will that will be you know, one of the great uh, uh, development uh, uh, instances, I think. That, that will be you know, a real uh, growth miracle. Okay, so I'll leave it there. I just uh, thank you for inviting me to participate and I wish uh, the ADB uh, all success in the future, even if it may, you know, should mean working yourself out of a job. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much, Ron. So we have uh, about 20 minutes for Q&A. If I can ask our four speakers to come up here to the front. Um, I understand Stephen needs to leave a little early as well, so um, apologies about that. speakers get set up we might uh, take questions or we'll take a few questions so does anyone want to start uh, yeah, the back. Did yeah, we, um, do we have a microphone or? no no okay we just have to speak up sorry interested in one of the questions that were listed um, on your advertising the impact the importance of the ADB to Australia so the question that 
concept which I thought was really interesting was how important is the ADB to Australia and what should Australia expect from it? Uh, are there any other questions? Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. um, thanks so much, all of you, for the presentation today. It was really interesting. Um, I actually work at DFAT and we're in the middle of some consultations um, with the ADB at the moment. Um, and I think one of the things that's been quite interesting is, I mean, the ADB is coming off um, a successful replenishment, which I think is a sign that many people think it's working and it's doing good things. Um, and a lot of what we've talked about that unfortunately didn't come up too much today was some of the reforms that the ADB is considering and some of the, um, you know, the associated with the scale up the different areas that the ADB is considering entering, the way it's scaling up its staffing profile. I think that might address some of the issues and the challenges that people raised in, in the presentation. Um, but one of the things that came up a lot was just this concept of um, middle-income countries with large pockets of, population, of their populations in poverty. Um, and I just wanted to see if maybe you could tease out a little bit more. I'm kind of interested in, in how the ADB could support those countries and hearing a little bit more from you on, on the, the ideas that you have for the different instruments that the ADB can employ um, to kind of address, uh, or maybe the sectors the ADB can move into to address um, these pockets of poverty within the middle income countries. Okay, thank you very much. So I think that was two questions. So we have three questions. Um, perhaps, uh, Anne-Marie, would you like to begin with the question about um, the importance of the ADB to Australia and what Australia can expect from the ADB? Um, <clears throat> thanks. Um, thanks for that question. You know, Australia isn't one of the countries that we're looking so strongly at in terms of the report. So my response to your question draws on my previous experience of Australia's relationship with the ADB, but also some of our own findings. Um, uh, the ADB for Australia has been particularly important in terms of the Pacific, and uh, as, as Ron has pointed out, and this is something that... Um, Australia, particularly through AUSAID, uh, we're talking a while ago now, was really keen to encourage ADB involvement in the Pacific. Part of that was linked to the clear development needs of the Pacific, but part of it was also linked to the fact that Australia, Australia is very big in the Pacific. It carries a lot of baggage as far as specific countries are concerned. Um, there is a tendency on the part of some specific countries to prefer to deal with others other than Australia because we tend to lecture. Um, it <laughs> comes with the territory, unfortunately. Um, so by bringing someone or an institution like the ADB in, we recognise the development needs. We also recognise the limitations on the way in which Australia can convince some Pacific countries to undertake certain policy reforms and, and see a real advantage in having an, a neutral body such as the ADB engaging in that really important policy dialogue. And I think that's one of the biggest strengths that the ADB brings to the whole development 
uh, aspirations for the Pacific, similarly with the World Bank. But I think the ADB can probably be much better than the World Bank in this because of its proximity and because, as uh, Hale, you pointed out, and it's something that we draw out in, the, in our report as well, ADB is of the region, for the region, by the region, and it kind of gets it, if you see what I mean. So that, that's another big advantage as well for Australia. Yeah, given that we're on the Pacific Rim, do you have anything to add to, to that comment? No, no. All right. I, I, I'll add one quick yeah, thing sure. because I think Iran posed the question in, in his remarks about he wasn't sure why it would be re-engaged re with the Pacific or stepped up our engagement from a sort of a, a low simmer for a number of years. And I, and I think Emery articulates it rather well. I think it, Part of it, of course, is we have a charter responsibility. We, we, the Pacific is mentioned specifically in our charter. Um, so I think that that's one reason, of course, that we always maintain a, a, some level of engagement. But I think it is really due to the, the priority that the Australian government placed on, on it and encouragement uh, that was given to ADB to step up our engagement in the Pacific uh, that, that led to you know, quite a significant change and, 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 and really, you know, and, and that change will continue and, and continue to rise over the course of the coming years. And, 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 and Rosemary mentioned the fact that we're here uh, doing some consultations with the government of Australia um, on specifically on the work in the Pacific as well as other areas. And, and, and I think that the success of that work, you know, with some challenges along the way, as we do have in any uh, country or set of countries, is revealed in the fact that Australia has significantly increase its contributions to ADB in our concessional window um, and in other kinds of support that Australia provides. So it's it's, it's important relationship that we have with Australia and, and I think one that is mutually beneficial. Okay. Um, there's also a question about forms within the ADB. Do you want to take a moment to... Sure. Um, we're in the process of, of, of you know, much of what I, I articulated in my talk is, is we're in the process of... of, of, of working on our new long-term strategic framework. Um, and we have a current long-term strategic framework that's called Strategy 2020. Uh, that expires, not surprisingly, in 2020. But because of the fast pace of change, we've decided to advance uh, the issuance of a new long-term strategic framework, likely to 2018. Uh, and that, you know, not terribly creatively, will be called Strategy 2030. And it, so, but in the course, we're not waiting until we completely articulate what our long-term strategic framework will be before we institute a set of reforms internally to make the institution more responsive, to make the institution much better. And I think that this goes a lot towards the point that, that Hal was mentioning about knowledge and the importance of making sure that we have in place in the institution ways of tapping our own knowledge and making sure that that knowledge that exists latently within the, within the, in, within the bank, the four walls of the bank, does come out to the surface, that we're able to share that knowledge and experience across the divisions that are, de that are defined by the regional departments that exist within the institution, and also the sort of important, more, more academic work that's done either in Tokyo with the Asian Development Bank Institute uh, or within our economics research center. So that's part of it, is, is, is making sure that we're, we're learning from within the institution but also looking at making sure that there are instruments, financial instruments and other instruments that, 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 are, that, that are responsive to the needs of a, of a changing clientele. Um, that we are able to recognize the fact that, as, as, as a number of you mentioned, 
you know, these countries, many of these countries have access to, to capital markets at this point. They can raise funds on their own. They don't need just cash from ADB. They need knowledge, they need experience, they need our ability to understand what has worked in one country and apply that or make suggestions on how to apply that in another. All the while being very mindful of the point how you made that, that, that we are a pragmatic institution and that's I think one of our strengths. We don't go to the, these countries to lecture, we don't go to the countries to tell them what to do. So we have to do that kind of you know, knowledge sharing in a, in, a, in a much more organic way uh, than sort of standing on a podium and telling the countries how to, how to, how to, how to operate. I think you've gone some way to answer the, the last question, which um, relates to uh, the large numbers of poor in middle-income countries. But, Hal, would you like to add anything um, on that point? Well, um, how long have we got? <laughs> so just a few quick points. Really important question, I think, that you know, rapidly rising incomes, but quite serious pockets of poverty and how to address them. So I guess the general lesson is, A, you need growth. Without growth, you won't get Poverty reduction, but you need growth plus, and we know a lot about what, what's in the plus, and it varies by country, but the essential elements, I guess, is you do need to have a fairly labour-intensive growth path, as Ron mentioned. Uh, you, crucially, the education issue is central because the poor only have their labour to sell, and therefore you need, they need to be equipped with the skills to be able to tap into the opportunities of growth and globalisation. So the education system is crucial, as is the health system. And then you need some sort of minimal safe, social safety nets. Now, what form they take, of course, is a big issue, but you need some form. Uh, some of it we know also is spatial. That is, there are regional pockets of poverty. So in Indonesia, you know, pretty rapid economic growth since the Asian financial crisis, but serious pockets of poverty, especially in eastern Indonesia, Papua, growing quite quickly, but poverty is actually rising. Uh, then there are other dimensions. There's often a gender dimension to poverty. We know that female-headed households tend to have higher levels of poverty uh, than, than, the, than the norm. And you need infrastructure and you need progressive taxation. So the rich do pay a bit more than they're currently paying in many countries to finance the public goods. It's a very big topic, but they're the kind of things I hit. And each one of them has a, has a role for the ADB in different forms, sometimes ideas, sometimes in direct projects, I guess. Thank you. Um, so, uh, any further questions? Um, Christopher? Yeah, um, thank you very much for the presentation. There was a lot of talk about the changing environment and the challenges that the ADB basically faced in the 21st century. At the same time, it was said, ADB sees itself as a knowledge program and there's a need to take on big ideas. Um, perhaps you could um, tell me, perhaps each of you, one big idea that you think the ADB could take on in the 21st <laughs> um, and, uh, yes, please. Yeah. Um, thank you for your very stimulating presentations. Uh, the question I'd like to raise is, uh, and it is that of corruption in the uh, absolute sense, but institutional on the, the legal bias favouring established elites and uh, how these can be addressed, especially in terms of the increase of discrepancy in income and uh, how, how, how it can lead to better governance, uh, you know, stimulated by the ADB. Thank you. Um, yes. Yeah, first of all, I really thank you, all of you, for the presentation. I think personally, was different because I get, I get scholarship from ADB, so I would like to take the chance to say thank you to ADB. 
And in the meantime, as the Guan Tu out of pattern, what is the strategy of ADB in the future in terms of supporting for human development in Asian countries, especially some countries like Vietnam? Thank you so much. Okay, and uh, there's a last question. Okay, that's the two questions. Just the two questions about AIIB. First, what's ADB's view about AIIB? Are you competitor or are you work together for Asian development? The second question is about what's the impact inside ADB? Will the emerging country have rather wise how the Japan and the United States have no control of ADB because China have another place to go? Okay, thank you for that question. Mm -hmm. All right, so I'll, um, I might simply defer to each of the speakers, and Stephen, you can um, go first, given that you need to leave. Um, so there's one on, on the big idea, another on corruption, uh, third on human development, um, and then, of course, the question about the, that, the more geopolitical question about the AIIB and um, China's role within yeah. ADB. Well, let me, uh, I, I, there's never never been a panel that I've been on where the AIIB hasn't come up. Um, and so let me take that first. Uh, I, first, I think that we don't view AIIB as a competitor in, in any way. Um, we have been working with the AIIB since it was established. Um, we have, uh, you know, uh, President Jin is a, is a former uh, staff member of, of ADB, so we know him well. Uh, we have quite a few former staff that are working at, at AIIB at the moment. We've helped them uh, with, uh, with setting up the safeguards policies. We've helped them um, with a whole bunch of other kinds of policies and approaches. Um, we've signed an MOU with them, um, and we have one project that has already been identified and started for co-financing with AIIB in Pakistan, and we're looking at other opportunities to co-finance. So we don't in any way look at them as a, as, as a competitor. At the same time, though, I think the advent of the AIIB and the fact that, uh, you know, much like tax policy in any country would not look as it does today if you were to rewrite it beginning now, uh, you know, a new institution is, is a good thing because you can learn from the positive and the negative uh, elements of the existing institutions uh, and, and, and design one that perhaps is a little bit more responsive to the current needs uh, in, 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 in that uh, region. So I think we can learn as AIIB becomes uh, fully effective and fully operational, there's much that we can learn from them as they, because they'll be able to cut away a lot of the underbrush that exists from 50 years of our own institutional development. So I think both in terms of, you know, the, I think the only kind of competition we would face with the AIIB is the good sort of competition, and one's the kind of competition that makes us all better and sharper in serving the needs of our clients, as well as, as sort of the more, the, the geopolitical elements of it. I think the, you mentioned about the role of, of, of some of the major shareholders of ADB, and so perhaps that that will also too be addressed uh, through the advent of the AIIB and the new development bank as well. Um, the point on supporting human development, I think that's a critical, critical point. I mean, we're an institution that long has focused on on infrastructure, um, on, on, on macroeconomic, on policy uh, issues, but of course human development is a critical uh, you know, point and a critical, uh, as, as you know, going back to the point about pockets of poverty, pockets of poverty in many of these middle income countries are driven by a lack of human development. So we have started to, to refocus the institution to bring more priority to um, investments in health, investments in education than we have in the past. So those are important ways of addressing some of the human development challenges that exist within many of these economies. 
Um, and I, the point on, on favoring elites and, and biases, I think that's a critical point. And the, I think the work that we do on, on, uh, on, on institutional development is critically important to make sure that there are institutions within, the, within these countries that are uh, much more, um, you know, that, that are paying attention to these kinds of issues that in a way that we, have, we, we are not going to drive uh, that kind of reform on our own. It's only through the support that we can do through institutional development that can help level the playing field in some of these economies in a way that it might not be today. And then lastly, the one big idea, that's a great question, it's an impossible one to answer. Um, because we, you know, I think what's critically important is that the, with the diversity of the countries that we have, is that one big idea in one country is not a big idea in another. And the kinds of challenges each one of these countries face, I'm sort of, you know, I, I, I'm sort of escaping the question, is so diverse and so different that I'm, I, I, I'm reluctant to to say that that, uh, that that there's a big idea that we should face. I think that the, the challenge of climate change, which every speaker has spoken to, is a critical challenge that is, that, is, that is faced by virtually all of the countries in the region. So that's something we definitely need to focus on um, in going in the future. It's not necessarily a big idea, but it is a common challenge that all these countries face. Thank you. Avram? Yeah. I, I'd suggest that uh, all people keep in mind Adam Smith's four fundamentals of development, that is property right, contract enforcement, law and order, and competition policy. But because without that, you, you just don't get development. Unless people have uh, property rights, and particularly secure property rights, and particularly to land, then anything you try to do for them it doesn't, it is of no use because you know, if you put a road somewhere, unless people beside that road have property rights to their land, that you know, they're not interested because it doesn't add value. You've, anything you do you know, has to add value to the property that you hold. And if people don't have, have uh, property rights to land, then they basically don't have property rights to anything because land is the fundamental uh, uh, property rights. It also, and getting to the question about infrastructure. You know, infrastructure is a no, you know, doesn't work or uh, won't be implemented unless you have secure property rights to, to uh, uh, put that, that, that in. And, you know, countries like, as I say, this is endemic throughout the Pacific, but, you know, countries like Myanmar, I mean, the property rights to land there were essentially destroyed. And, you know, they, they have, in some way, they have to be restored in, if uh, Myanmar is going to become the rice bowl of the world as it once was, you know, all, under socialist governments, all that that property rights were taken away, and uh, you fly fly over there, and you know, you just see this huge delta there. You think, what isn't that wonderful? And you get down low, and there's nothing going on because you know people are uninterested in uh, in in working on that on that land. Thank you, Anne-Marie. I'm going to start because you might have to go soon and I want you to actually hear the one big idea. It's, it's, it's not a new idea, but it hasn't been implemented very well. And that is dealing with gender inequity and inequality right across the region. I'm probably more um, stirred up by this having just come back from Iran, where clearly 50% of the population are... 
better use of that resource would support Iran far better and more effectively than it currently does. But that same lesson applies right across Asia. And I think one thing that you will find in our report is that we are very critical of the Asian Development Bank, not just at management level, but also country membership. If you just have a look at representation, both in senior management, but very importantly, the resident directors who are almost all men and who have almost always been all men. So we're not just pointing the, the stick at management, we are pointing the stick at every single country that is a member, including Australia, of the Asian Development Bank. Dealing with gender inequity is absolutely a big idea that has never been implemented well. It would be good to see it being implemented. Just to add a point to that, it's interesting that you have the um, chairwoman of the Federal Reserve and the IMF headed by women now. Thank you, Pamela. So, lots of interesting issues and questions. Uh, on the big, the big idea, uh, <laughs> hard, to get you, hard to get your head around it, but the big idea I would think of, and everything that's been said before I agree with, is sustaining development momentum in a really difficult global environment. Seems to me at the moment we are in perhaps one of the most challenging global environments we've been in for a long time. Slow economic growth globally, uh, a lot of volatility, especially for emerging economies, managing global economic volatility, serious conflict, arguably the most serious conflict globally since World War II, and climate change and a huge uncertainty. And so work, countries working their way through this very difficult environment, I think, and maintaining the development momentum to improve living standards, I think, is probably the biggest single challenge. Just on corruption, um, I hesitate to sort of buy, buy into the issue because it's so big, but we do know a fair bit about what helps and what doesn't help, I guess, don't we? We know that transparency is really important because information flows uh, empower people to be able to, to, to uh, inspect and interrogate institutions, including governments. Uh, we know that economic policy reform is really important, especially deregulation, because licences, in a sense, empower bureaucrats to extract rents from the citizens, you know, through having to get a signature. And we know that you've got to put up, put in institutional checks and balances to actually uh, empower the, the citizenry to take action uh, in the cases of serious malfeasance. So that kind of package, I guess, we know we know the elements of it. The question is getting countries to actually implement it. All right, well, I think that's all we have time for. Please join me in thanking our panel. Um, and, and please do come in and ask any further questions you have um, with our panel members. We'll have tea and coffee outside now. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.